thank you. Welcome to the Pat Mayo Experience, part two of the 2020 Mega Oscars preview. Today, we are going category by category, breaking down all of the picks you need for your pool, plus a few bets along the way if you want to get into a draw for, get this, 100 DraftKings dollars. Subscribe to the Pat Mayo Experience audio podcast leave a five-star review DraftKings handle and something you like about this show as an advertisement to the people just randomly searching and boom you'll be in that draw for 100 DraftKings dollars you want to get into a draw for 20 DraftKings dollars smash the like button to the video leave your DraftKings handle in the comment section let's make this one easy who do you think is going to win best pitcher boom you'll be in the draw for 20 DK bucks winners announced on Monday's show. This is part two of the preview. If you want to check out part one, where we really go in depth on not only the best movies of the decade and the year, but really breaking down best picture and those odds, highly recommend you check out part one, which also has all a brand new set of giveaways as well. But here is part two of my conversation, category by category in the picks with Scott Yeager. Enjoy. Best picture. To recap the nominees, 1917 is a minus 300 favorite to win. Parasite is the second favorite, four to one. You get four times your money to bet on Parasite. Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, Joker, Irishman, Jojo Rabbit, Marriage Story, Little Women, Ford versus Ferrari. For both the bet, I am betting Parasite at plus 400, and I am picking it in the pool. That'll be my differentiator pick. What about you? Yeah, exactly. I'm, I'm picking it. Uh, with the plus 400 or whatever you can get it at, I think those will only get worse. And when I say worse, I mean from a betting perspective. So I think people are going to bet Parasite as the week goes on. I've, I actually, I've seen it go down. Now DraftKings says it at 325. So if you like Parasite, take them now. And again, in those pools, you look for those differentiators. You look for where you can pick up a point. A lot of people, you know, I will say, and I don't fault them for this because I do this. Like if someone ever is like, want to do a Grammy school? I'm like, I don't know anything about it. You know, you look up Golden Derby, you find the odds or wherever you get them and you just pick those favorites. So knowing that a large percentage of your pool are going to go chalk, you find the ones where you can divert, especially if there's no money on the line per se, and you're just trying to pick up points here or there. This is a great spot to do that. Because once we get to the acting categories, we'll see you're probably just going to want to eat the chalk for any sort of pool pick. But we'll do best yeah. director next. And I've already made the argument throughout our discussion that I think this is the spot. I mean, it's very I don't think it's very clear that Sam Mendes is going to win. I think it's kind of obvious that he's going to end up winning this. This would be like if Mendes doesn't win this, they had, 1917 is not winning best pitcher whatsoever. But he's a minus 1000 favorite. So for context, for people that don't know anything about betting, that means you would have to risk $1,000 in order to win $100. So probably not a bet you want to get on. Uh, Bong Joon-ho is plus 550. Quentin Tarantino, 16 to 1. Martin Scorsese, 40 to 1. Todd Phillips, 66 to 1. Like I said, I think this is the reverse of what happens in a lot of these years where the you know international foreign language director ends up winning best director and the other movie wins best picture. I think it's going to work in the inverse here. So I think that Mendes is, even in your pool, if, you're, if you have the, a lot of money to bet, it's a pretty good bet. Yeah, I think that uh, Mendes is probably the move in both the, the yeah, I wouldn't bet, bet it, but I think that, you know, I don't know if any of the, Places you may be putting in bets allow parlays. I think he is approaching that lock territory there. Um, however, you know, it's one of those things where if, uh, you know, before the DGA, you asked me, is it still wide open? Could Bong take it? Now that I'm seeing that Bong is now maybe getting screenplay, 
maybe it's not the move to take him here um, at director. So I would stay away from picking against Mendez from a betting perspective as well in the pools. I would still go with Mendez as well. Best actor. We keep referencing Joker in the awards it's going to win. Well, it's going to win this one. Joaquin Phoenix, a minus 5,000 favorite. Uh, besides Parasite and foreign language film, I believe he is the biggest favorite of any category on the board. So you'd have to risk 5,000 in order to win $100 on Joaquin Phoenix. Adam Driver's 10 to 1. DiCaprio is 25 to 1. Jonathan Price for the two popes is 50 to 1. Antonio Banderas, so sexy. He is 50 to 1. Not sexy enough to win this award, though, but. Just put put the quick check mark next to Joaquin and move on, move about our way here. Yep, that's what I that's what I'd recommend doing. It sucks because I really think Adam Driver one of the best performances I've seen in a really long time. Uh, Leonardo DiCaprio to me this to me is like my favorite Leonardo DiCaprio performance. So it stinks that it just came in a year where there's two other really strong performances as well. Again, like it, it, it almost in a hard it's, it's hard to say this when a guy loses as much weight as Joaquin Phoenix did in such a physical performance and obviously one that probably took a toll on him. But it to me is almost the easier one than the su- sort of subtle things that Leo has to do uh, and and that Adam has to do there. Um, so I do think this is uh, Joaquin Phoenix uh, all the way. Best actress, we have the overwhelming favorite of Renee Zellweger for a film, like we've mentioned, no one has seen, minus 3,300 for Judy. Uh, ScarJo, 10 to 1 for, sorry, 11 to 1 for Marriage Story. Cynthia, how do I pronounce that? Arrivo? Arrivo. Arrivo for Harriet, 25 to 1. Charlize for Bombshell, 28 to 1. Saoirse Ronan, 33 to 1 for Little Women. Is there the potential for, like, out of all these acting categories, I know we discussed this briefly, this does feel like the fact that just no one has seen Judy, that maybe they don't vote for Renee Zellweger? Yes. So I have a similar idea for how this could impact Best Supporting Actress, but I I don't think it happens um, because I think there would have been a little glimmer of something sooner in one of the other either Guild Awards or the Golden Globes or something like that. And, and Renee Zellweger's just swept across the board. So we haven't seen it. But the one thing I'll say, you know, is that is it possible that the Academy or collectively the people who vote for these awards want to sort of an, uh, anoint one of these younger actresses um, in one of these categories, whether it be against Laura Dern and supporting um, or whether it be in this category. So if it isn't going to be Renee Zellweger, as much as I would like to think that Scarlett, you know, Johansson, um, who, you know, did great work in Marriage Story or, or Charlize uh, Theron, Theron uh, did in Bombshell, I wonder if Saoirse Ronan, in a weird way, could come up and, and sneak in for Little Women. Um, Scarlett Johansson, to me, I think, did the, the best work of the year in uh, Marriage Story. And it's a shame, again, that she comes up against this juggernaut and Judy and Renee Zellweger, especially since I don't believe it should be the juggernaut that it is. Charlize uh, Theron fantastic transformative work as Megyn Kelly, but I think you run into the same thing that Christian Bale had playing Dick Cheney. I don't know how many people want to vote for that story, for that protagonist, for lack of a better term. Um, Cynthia Erivo, great performance. She's a great actress. She's a great person uh, in just, I think, a lackluster movie. I don't see that um, chipping away at Renee Zellweger's uh, momentum here. Again, go with the chalk, go with Renee, but if it's going to happen in one of these acting categories, I think it's either here or supporting actress. Um, And I think it's it's maybe ScarJo or Sersha. So I think that, uh, yeah, for your pool, pick Renee Zellweger. Just put the check next to her name. For an actual bet, 
I think even if you want to take the shot, 11 to 1 in 33 to 1, just a light sprinkle on both that, you know, maybe you get lucky with an upset on that one. Just where Scarlett Johansson has two nominations and two acting categories, and it really doesn't seem like she's going to win for Jojo Rabbit, that maybe that there is more support for her than maybe the guilds have shown so far. Yeah, it's possible. You wonder, you know, we'll get to in a different category. I wonder how, how sometimes double nominations can affect somebody. Um, wonder maybe does that give her a shot in that category too um ironically enough laura dern who's the favorite in that category i think is getting a lot of love for the two performances she had this year you know she was great in little women she's great in marriage story some people think she's even better in little women than marriage story of course her team decided to collectively punt on little women and thus she's just kind of going out there for marriage story and look she looks like a shoe in to win that award so about the sprinkling though i don't i don't think you need to get cute with these favorites if you have some sort of like a free play on on in some sort of a, a betting world where, you know, kind of can do it with no written, but like, I just really, I think that these are kind of locked up. I do. I think that in a year where, where some of these other things aren't locked up, I think these are kind of, people are just checking these boxes, but you never know. And if you have a play, a play to make, I would go ScarJo. Although ScarJo, the weird thing about ScarJo, as much as I think it's the best performance, um, probably by any uh, female actor this year, I just think that there's some anti-ScarJo backlash, which is tough to say when someone's nominated for two Oscars. But I wonder if some of the weird stuff in the news over the past couple of years about her getting uh, roles that she shouldn't have gotten and whatnot, um, if that plays a part. So something weird, something tells me maybe Sersha is the, is the, is the move. But again, I really would. I'm not recommending it. So yeah, I mean, <laughs> don't pull that quote. Hey, at 33 to one, you put 10 bucks on that. You get 330, 333 bucks back. That's worth, I have wasted $10 on much worse things, Scott. There you go. So next category, the Brad Pitt Open, best supporting actor category. Uh, he's a minus 5,000 favorite. Joe Pesci is second at 11 to one. Uh, then you have Al Pacino at 25 to one. Tom Hanks at 28 to one. Anthony Hopkins or Tony. Brad Pitt calls him for the two popes, 51. Stack category of names. I'm not going to lie to you. I thought that Joe Pesci... I thought that Joe Pesci was amazing in The Irishman, and I thought that Al Pacino was kind of trash in The Irishman. His his accent kept changing every, like, four minutes. Yeah, right. Al Pacino is doing the Saturday Night Live impression of Al Pacino in that movie, which kind of works for that role, because, like, Jimmy Hoffa is, like, this sort of larger-than-life person that nobody could actually picture... You know, you sort of just know the name and he becomes famous for going missing. So the fact that Al Pacino was like this caricature of himself kind of works. But I agree. Joe Pesci is like the much more like just like hauntingly subtle performance there. Um, if it is his last performance, I think it's a great one to go out on. So um, but Brad Pitt, who somehow never won an Oscar at this point, um, he had a really funny joke when he accepted an award late, lately. I think I think it was recently. I think it was at the SAG Awards. He said, like, you know, uh, a guy who does drugs and has trouble with women. Uh, you know, what, what, a what a stretch for me, but it's like, it really is kind of Brad doing Brad and be just being the cool guy. And I think this role and him has grown to represent this movie, you know, and I think what you like about this movie is watching Brad and Leo for two hours, be Brad and Leo and having fun. And, and I think that that be, coupled with the great speeches he's been doing, going out there and giving, I think, you know, this is the time to kind of, you know, anoint Brad and have that Oscars check next to his name. Anytime he's on the poster of a movie and, I'll be honest, if there's like a weird what the F, it's like Anthony Hopkins winning this thing, which again, he was great. Like that movie, very unheralded at this point, because it's like the fourth, you know, Netflix put all the money behind Irishman and then Marriage Story and then even like Dol Dolomite is my name and then Two Popes. I mean, he's great in that. Jonathan Price is great in that. But 
I mean, wouldn't that be the ultimate Mark Rylance moment? Uh, you know, almost giving it to Sylvester Stallone and then the guy from Bridges Spies wins it. The, theater, the, the career theater actor wins it and, and, and the movie that nobody really loves. And then what if Brad Pitt finally, after sweeping everything, loses to Anthony Hopkins, who obviously doesn't need another statue for a movie that, you know, is on Netflix. But anyway, best supporting. Best supporting AI. Just just check Brad. I mean, you're not going to bet him because you, know, you don't want to. And have fun doing it, too. Oh, yeah. It'll be probably like one of the first awards of the night, too. So get Brad on stage. Get people all fired up. But best supporting actress, Laura Dern is the favorite. She's a minus 2,500 favorite. So that's pretty significant. Uh, then it's Margot Robbie, 10 to 1. Florence Prue, 16 to 1. Scarlett Johansson, 33. And Kathy Bates, 66 to 1. So you have a feeling this could be an upset? Yes. So this is the one where, again, not telling you to do it, but because uh, I do think this is the time to give Laura Dern her award. And Laura Dern, this journey woman actress who's been around for so long. She's so beloved. She's done such great work. She comes from a Hollywood family. Her father, obviously, famously, Bruce Dern, is probably going to be there. Um, and she had two great performances this year. And I think this, again, the same way Brad Pitt has become the way to honor Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Laura Dern is the representative of Marriage Story. She plays this kind of like very, you know, too cool for school uh, divorce lawyer who gets all this great hammy dialogue. And although I don't think her performance is that breathtaking or anything like that, she's sort of become the representative of this film that Noah Baumbach, you know, just kind of wrote so well and, and wrote all these characters so well. And she's at the heart of so many of these great scenes in that film. So I do think she takes it. I do think this is a sort of marriage story's time to shine. But Similarly to what I said about about Renee Zellweger and Judy is that if I if I, I see sort of the flip side of like, you know, when a guy like Mark Rylance wins or something like that, or Olivia Coleman and, you know, it's like a very respected veteran actor winning unexpectedly. I think this might be in a way that's kind of to anoint a new young star in this category. And although Scarlett Johansson isn't new, she kind of applies, but not who I would go with. I would go with either a Margot Robbie or a Florence Pugh. Um, similar pew, 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 pew. Um, I think that, you know, a lot of people love the work she did this year in Midsommar and Fighting for My Family. That's a movie about Paige, the pro wrestler. Honestly, you can watch it on Hulu right now. Really, really fun comedy. Check it out. Um, and so I think that, is this the time where, you know, do they kind of throw her the, the bone a little earlier than most actors get these awards? You know, I think the Academy sometimes does get tired of seeing Someone like a Brad Pitt or a Leonardo DiCaprio waits so long in their career to finally get honored. Once in a while, it's, hey, let's give them one too early, you know? And so maybe that happens here with Florence. Maybe it happens with Margot Robbie. Wouldn't be too early for her because she's getting nominated almost every year at this point. But uh, one of those ladies I do think could come out uh, with an upset here. It's not likely, but if you want to get crazy, you know, 10 to 1, the odds aren't that long uh, for Margot. That's telling you something. It means they think there's a chance. Um, and then I like uh, Florence Pugh there, too. Yeah, I, it's one of those things that if you're going to swerve off this, it better be in the betting realm. Because in your Oscar pool, just put the check next to Laura Dern and go on your way with these massive acting favorites. I want to talk about yeah. best adapted screenplay because this is really flipped. This is one of the categories that has actually flipped over the past few weeks. So now Jojo Rabbit is the favorite, minus 275. Little Women was the favorite, no longer the favorite, 2-1. to one. Irishman, 7-1. to one. Joker, 66-1. to one. The Two Popes, 66-1. to one. People made such a big stink on the internet um, when Little Women wasn't nominated for Best Director. Oh, what a snub. This is horrendous. Look at Hollywood, how ridiculous it is. That it almost seemed like a certainty that it would win Best Adapted Screenplay, but now it looks like it's not going to do that either. Yeah, so it's funny. I had that kind of penciled in as, again, the way to, to honor Little Women, the way to get Greta on stage, get her an Oscar, even if it's not for director. 
Um, and you, you mentioned these odds shifting over the past few weeks. Those odds flipped in the past four days because what happened was Taika Waititi took the Writers Guild Award. He took the BAFTA Award for Best Adapted Screenplay. Now we've had a flip. I still think uh, I'm picking Greta and I'm picking Little Women here. Um, I, I, it's not common that these things divert. But when you have, again, that added narrative, BAFTA clearly doesn't care about how things look on paper. They clearly don't care about representation. You can go and you can watch Joaquin Phoenix's speech about the, uh, the lack of diversity among the acting nominees and stuff like that. I do think the Oscar, Oscars voting pool and the Academy, if you will, if you want to call them a collective sort of organization, are aware of certain stigmas. And I do think Little Women, coupled with the backlash from Greta not getting nominated for Best Director, Little Women's a movie a lot of people have been seeing over the past six weeks, whereas Jojo Rabbit, not so much. And I think that... This is something that could divert from the chalk. Um, and I think that although I'm not telling you, hey, this is a way to win money, um, I do think if you do want to take a, uh, an underdog here, I think they're a very live dog, still Little Women and uh, Adapted Screenplay. And this could be like kind of a happy surprise. I do think this is also possibly a way, since a lot of people might check that Jojo Rabbit box, seeing it in the favorite point, to kind of divert a little bit on your pool and still take Greta and Little Women. Um, again, it's not, it's not the favorite anymore, and that's for good reason. It has not won those two precursor awards that are typically a good way to see who's going to win, but it's not rocket science, and I do think there's a lot of other things in play here. So I'm still going with Greta, I think. Yeah, I'm going to stick with Jojo Rabbit on this. I mean, I just enjoy Jojo Rabbit so much more than Little Women that – and. It's weird because, you know, Little Women, we've seen, how many Little Women movies are there at this point? I know this one is different. but That's like, the problem, yeah. And like Jojo Rabbit, well, it's an adapted screenplay, does seem like a really original story. Like this is sort of a swerve off, life is beautiful from like 25 years ago. And this is the 2020 version of that movie. And frankly, this movie is just better than that. Yeah, I think it's win-win. I think they're both great movies. I think they're both great filmmakers. You obviously have two writer-directors that we're talking about here, Taika Waititi and Greta Gerwig. And as much as I love Greta Gerwig and I would love to see her win, Taika Waititi is doing such a, some of the most original, amazing work across genres. He directed Thor Ragnarok, which I think is the funniest superhero or Marvel movie ever made. He uh, directed the finale and also starred in as a voice of a droid on The Mandalorian. And, and so, I mean, Taika Waititi, I think, is one of the most interesting filmmakers in the world. And I think giving him an Oscar is, is no, you know, people should not be creating a villain out of him just because you want Greta to win. This isn't like, come on. I mean, I, it's one of those things where I think people get ahead of themselves and it's, oh, the thing I wanted to happen didn't happen. Let's get mad at the person who, who takes that slot. Let's get mad that Todd Phillips got nominated and not Greta. No, Todd did great work too, you know? So it's similar here. I think win-win in the adapted screenplay. Was there a snub you thought that really stood out? Because for me, I mean, Anthony Hopkins is fine. And like I said, Al Pacino, I didn't think was very good in The Irishman. But Sam Rockwell in Jojo Rabbit, for a guy that's won this award and been nominated a few times now, it's shocking to me he wasn't nominated for Best Supporting Actor. Yeah, you know what's funny about snubs? Like when somebody says snub to me, I look at it as like, did this person get nominated across the board and then did it stop here? You know, were they nominated for the SAG and the Golden Globe and then it stopped? And Sam wasn't getting, I don't think, they, I just don't think they ran him. I think they were almost running uh, Taika as a supporting actor for the, the Hitler role more than, than Sam. I think Sam also had a supporting role in Richard Jewell. And I think a lot of this is political as far as who they put in the minds of voters and this and that. So the fact that Sam hadn't been nominated up until this point, I don't call that a snub. The one, again, that same token, I was prepared for this because he hadn't gotten nominated at all. But like Adam Sandler, I think 
deliver this amazing, you know, star turning performance in a movie that is so like not the average performance of his in Uncut Gems, a movie that he takes on his back from a, an acting perspective. It's a very well-made movie, but I think he's so interesting in it. And I think it would have been so cool to honor him for that. But again, you, he gets snubbed for the Globe, he gets snubbed for the SAG, and by the Oscar time, you know that he's not going to get nominated. So um, again, similarly with Greta Gerwig, would I have had her in my top five directors? Yes. But Todd Phillips was getting nominated across the board. Didn't feel like necessarily an unexpected snub to me. Um, you know, the J-Lo was the biggest surprise, not seeing her out there uh, for that. So I guess, look, the person I think the most deserves it and wasn't out there, I think, is Adam Sandler. But I found that out mid-December, so that probably wasn't happening. Best Original Screenplay, Parasite, is now the current betting favorite over Quentin Tarantino's Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, minus 200 for Parasite, plus 150 for Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, Marriage Story, the presumptive favorite like six months ago, now not going to win, 11 to 1, 1917, 40 to 1, Knives Out, 40 to 1, shout out to Knives Out, I really like Knives Out, but it is there a Quentin Tarantino factor here that we're just completely overlooking that the Academy loves to vote for him in this award? Yeah, I mean, this is the award he always wins. Famously, he wins this one and not director, uh, unfortunately. Uh, and this is a year again where it's like, look who he's competing against. And I mean, as great of a screenplay as Once Upon a Time in Hollywood is, uh, I think Parasite's probably a better screenplay. Like, you look at Once Upon a Time in Hollywood and so much of it is not on the back of this, but when you look at the, the, the magnetism of a Brad Pitt and, and Leo in that great performance and Margot Robbie almost nominated for that, for that performance as well. And Parasite, although great performances and we saw it got to get honored as an ensemble in SAG, I mean, the screenplay of Parasite is just so brilliant and the, the storytelling and whatnot. And so um, it's one of those things, flip a coin. I mean, I think it's so cool that one of these movies is probably going to win. What's fun is that, look, uh, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood last week was the betting favorite. Now you're getting plus 150. So if you still think Quentin's taking it, if you think this is Quentin getting up on stage because Bong's going up for foreign film for sure, might go up for best picture, might, you know, so maybe this still is Quentin. Plus 150 is awesome. They get Quentin Tarantino, a guy who for the past month or so has been the favorite who won over at the Golden Globes the plus 150. I don't think that's a bad bet. I do think this is the win on the route to the Parasite win for best picture. So to me, I probably just for my through line of the, 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 the pool ballots I might be doing, it's sort of like one begets the other. So if I'm taking Parasite for best picture, I probably have to take Bong here and uh, his partner here to win best uh, original screenplay. But I'm not mad at you if you want to bet Once Upon a Time in Hollywood plus 150 is great odds for that film. Yeah, for the bet and for the odds, I'm going to go with Once Upon a Time in Hollywood and still have Parasite as my best picture winner because when we get to best editing next, I'll have it there. And I think that's the through line that I want to play. I can just see this being a spot where, as you kind of hit on it, you know you're going to see Bong on stage for best foreign film. That's almost an inevitability at this point. And then you can get him back out there uh, in terms of best picture. And I mean, besides Brad Pitt, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood is not going to win any awards. People do seem to like the movie. Quentin Tarantino, I think, has three wins in this category already. It's just a nice spot to keep patting him up. You get Quentin on the stage for a movie that people really liked. Viewers at home really liked it. That I could see that if people down the list are like, oh, I voted Parasite this way, I'll go with Once Upon a Time in Hollywood in this specific category. And that way we can reward that in the way that it should be, knowing that it's not going to really win anywhere else. I just think that when it comes down to it, as I said earlier, 
the Quentin files, you know, whether you're a Quentin file through and through, or whether you're the type of person that a Quentin Tarantino screenplay resonates with, are all, you're also in turn probably a parasite person. So to me, again, you're talking about a movie that I have ranked as my seventh favorite movie of the decade, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, but it's going up against the movie that I have as my second favorite movie of the decade. And I, there's a lot of people like me, like you, who love both of these films for good reason. So I think that's a problem there. I think that, you know, if this was like, say Parasite was based on like a, a limerick or a short story and it was an adapted. Limerick. Right. Quentin's running away with this thing. But I think that Quentin is sort of competing against himself when it comes to these votes in this category. Best editing, Parasite and Ford versus Ferrari are the co-favorites at even money. So plus 100. The Irishman, with the movie that's almost four hours long, best editing, good luck with that one. Plus five and a half. Jojo Rabbit, 33 to one. Joker, 66 to one. Like I said, I think that if Parasite wins Best Picture, it almost has to win this award. So I will be going with Parasite. How about you? Yeah, I'm going with Parasite here too. Uh, I like the bet. I like the pool pick. And I will say if I see Ford versus Ferrari win this year, I think it spells maybe doom for Parasite. But when I saw Parasite take the Ace Eddie Award and let me know, hey, the editors are going with Parasite. And although Ford versus Ferrari took editing at the BAFTAs, BAFTAs is a bit funky. Um, and it seems like they kind of skew a little differently with a lot of this stuff. Um, I don't even think Parasite was nominated for editing at the BAFTAs, actually. So to me, when you tell me the editors are, are who gets behind this movie, whereas it, honestly, I would have thought, oh, the editors really understand the editing of a movie like Ford versus Ferrari and the cutting and this and that, the races look so great. Um, then I would say, yeah. But the fact that it won over that in, in that uh, avenue, and again, the, the larger narrative of that leading to a best picture win for Parasite, I'm going that or across the board here. Best Cinematography, 1917. Again, one of the biggest favorites in any category on the board, minus 5,000 to win the other nominees, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, Joker, Lighthouse, and Irishman. If your movie is known for its camera work, uh, you're probably going to win Best Cinematography, I think. I said, after I saw this movie, I said, Roger Deakins locked up the Best Cinematography Oscar within the first 19.17 seconds of this movie. Because the first movie, the first scene is like, these two guys, they get up and they start talking and they just keep walking and they keep talking and they keep And then they like kind of navigate and they go into this like, uh, what, what's it called, a trench. And you're like, oh, we're, oh, we're just going with them. And then you're like, oh, th this Oscar is locked up. And, and rightfully so. I mean, it's funny, Deakins now, he went, I think, 13 or 15 nominations without winning, and then he finally wins for Blade Runner 1949. Or was it 1949? Blade, Blade Runner 1917. And then, uh, and now again, the floodgates have opened, and now he's going to win every one he's up for, probably. So it's ironic. But he totally deserves it for this. Not, not, take him in your pool. Take him, bet him if you can. Parlay him if you can. This is the, me, one of the – this and Parasite for foreign film are like the two ultimate locks. You're not convincing me anything else. So the I was trying to find the best way to describe the style of this movie to someone. And here's what I came down on. Maybe you can weigh in on this. I thought the movie itself, based on the way that it was filmed and sort of the energy that it had all the way through, and there are a bit of there are a few lulls in it because a movie can't be like I mean, it could be nonstop action the entire time. Mad Max was kind of that way, but I said it was kind of a, the visual style and visual language of this movie was somewhere in between Run, Lola, Run, and Children of Men. Interesting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, Deacons uh, did not shoot uh, Children of Men. That was uh, Chiba, I think, right? 
the uh, it, it, right. It, it was, but, but the, the scene in the like the rig that Karan built for the scene in the car with Julianne Moore and Clive Owen, and yep. just a lot of how the action was filmed, even when they get to like the decrepit cities, are very they mirror the camera movements and the style that you would see in here. And there was a kinetic pace to this movie in sort of the action parts. It just reminded me a lot of each section of Run Lola Run. That's just like we're getting to it, we're getting to it. Obviously, that's more of like a choppy Baz Luhrmann style, like right. Moulin Rouge style editing but that energy i felt very present in 1917 what i loved about this movie is i feel like when you explain to somebody oh it's all one shot or some people say oh it looks like a first person shooter video game whatever that's almost like to me not giving it enough credit because this movie did not look like any other movie i've ever seen and the way if it was like nonstop action that would almost be too easy but the way they like navigate in and out of these smaller scenes where you get like Andrew Scott for a minute and you get Colin Firth for a minute and they're, and they're having these creative ways of like passing things in front of the frame so they can obviously cut and get lunch in real life. But to <laughs> you, it feels like one seamless experience. I've never seen anything like it. I just, and I really, you know, I obviously you can look for comparisons in other films and those are two very well shot films and particularly, you know, Children of Men and that, that scene you reference is referenced a lot. But this I think was just, I mean, when you look at the degree of difficulty, and the idea of just like giving you a real, I mean, I can't remember the last time you got such a great sort of uh, just context for space in something that's like so commonly used in a movie, like a, like the trenches in a war, right? So many scenes are taking place, like, you know, Saving Private Ryan and all these films where you give so much credit to these scenes and they are fantastic, but you never really have an idea of like how far they are from the opponent or how far they are from the weapons or like you know, how long it goes. This, like, you just understood everything spatially. It was really breathtaking. And I thought, you know, when you watch the documentaries or, you know, there's a couple of features and stuff you can watch online of how they shot this and how they did it. And it's, it's unbelievable. It's incredible, the whole thing. And that's why I think in a year where Bong Joon-ho, Quentin Tarantino, Todd Phillips, Greta Gerwig, all these people did amazing work as directors. I'm not even the slightest bit upset that Sam Mendes is running away with this thing, especially for Roger Deakins as well. So here's my one counter to why 1917 is good. The one thing that took me out of the movie was Colin Firth, Benedict Cumberbatch, and uh, Richard Madden. Like, I don't understand why they're in the movie. It actually kind of took me out of it. So you thought they were too famous to be in this movie that other than that is filmed with like relative unknown actors? Yes. So, yeah, I think that the more unknown, some movies like Once Upon a Time in Hollywood really benefits from having the biggest possible stars in it because you bring your baggage along with them. Like it felt really gimmicky when I saw Benedict Cumberbatch, it's like being the general that they have to talk to. It's like that could have literally been anyone. Like, why do I need to be able to recognize this guy? That has nothing to do with the movie. It just took me, like, it's, especially because the way that it's filmed puts you into that situation so easily, and then you really feel like you're a part of it. Like you said, the spatial language is very easy to understand. You can feel like you're walking along with these guys. Then you see a celebrity. It's like, oh, that's weird. Yeah, I, you know, so that didn't bother me. I, for some reason, I feel like I have, like, a, a in my mind, I'm kind of used to, in war movies, like little uh, one-shot roles, generals here or there being played by with kind of stunt casting, for lack of a better term. I think it's something actually you see quite a bit in war movies. And I think it kind of works for me in that setting because you have the two leads who are like privates or, you know, or whatever. I forget exactly what their, their rank is, you know, in this larger scheme of things. And then they get to these kind of points where you do have these, these generals or sergeants or whatever the Benedict Cumberbatches are of the world. And those people are meant to sort of have a little bit more of a, of a, of a I, I want to say, uh, presence 
you know, and they have, they carry themselves. So in, in a weird way, it's like, if you were there, there would be a thousand people who look just like you, who like move out of the way, whatever, but you know, the one general. And so, you know, although in that world, he's not supposed to be Benedict Cumberbatch for us as viewers, we're kind of like, Oh, he's the one guy who stands out, but he's supposed to be, he's the guy who gets to stay in the tent and call the order. I think what you're saying is correct on that front, except for it's very, it's made explicitly clear within the movie that the guy who has to deliver the message doesn't know what he looks like either. That, Oh, there's almost a certain part of anonymity, but uh, but almost as like where we've been following him the whole way that at being the audience and recognizing someone because of their position is one thing, but that's not how the character will experience it whatsoever. That I just thought that was a weird gap. Yeah. I'll also say that, look, like I know he's Dr. Strange, but to me, like Benedict Cumberbatch, Colin Firth, it's not exactly like, you know, Denzel Washington and Tom Hanks, like, you know, like Colin Firth to me, although he's an Oscar winning actor, he's still kind of like a journeyman kind of, you know, he, he does get plugged into films a lot and supporting roles and whatnot. And he does, I think, fit in that setting. Well, Richard Madden, of course, is like, you know, extremely good looking and he's through Game of Thrones and everything, but again, not a megastar, you know, like we know him obviously as Rob Stark, but like other than, you know, the bo bodyguard, like, I don't know why him at the end necessarily bothers you. Now, granted, again, if you plug in some superstars there, I get that it would be distracting. If Harrison Ford is in there or whatever, those three didn't bother me as much. Because again, like Andrew Scott, who stood out to me because I had just watched Fleabag, you didn't even mention him. But he's one of the people that they kind of meet along the way who's smoking the cigarette and gives them kind of, tells them how to get to the other side. He's not famous to you, but he was fresh in my mind because I had just seen him. So I think it's all relative. I think, to be honest with you, I think there's a lot of people who saw this movie who don't know who Colin Firth is, who don't know who Richard Madden is, who probably know Benedict Cumberbatch from the Marvel movies, but you know what I mean? I think it's all relative. We're cinephiles. They seem like celebrities to us. They're not like Tom Cruise. Sure. I guess you could have, I mean, when you bring up the, having Denzel Washington as one of these roles would have been really jarring in the British Army for World right. War I. But, uh, you know what I mean? Uh, yeah, yeah. No, no, I know exactly what you mean. But like Cumberbatch... It, it, a lot of the Cumberbatch stuff, maybe it's him in particular that I had the problem with, just because he has such a distinct look in general. Like, whether you know, you're a big fan of Sherlock or not, like how a lot of people first got introduced to him, or you're a big fan of the Marvel Universe, like even if you don't know his name is Benedict Cumberbatch, just the look of him, you kind of know who he is. Richard Madden, you're probably right. I just... Bodyguard won a bunch of awards in Britain. It was huge. Like, it's a massive hit in Britain. And people watch Game of Thrones. They know that. Maybe you're right about Colin Firth. I don't know. But like, as the reason that I didn't bring up Fleabag at all is that, well, Fleabag is like big on the internet and big with people who are really into TV. Not a super smash hit in terms of people actually seeing it. No, it's true. And again, with Benedict Cumberbatch, it's funny though, you know, and this has almost become a joke about him is that I will say as famous as he gets, he's not like distractingly good looking or anything like that. He, to me, looks like somebody from that time period. You know, you throw a scar on him or whatever he has. I forget what it is. It's like, I buy him in that role. I buy Colin Farrell in that role, or Colin Firth in that role. It doesn't seem like you're plugging him in there. Like, I'll be honest, one of my favorite movies of all time is Inglorious Bastards. Brad Pitt sticks out like a sore thumb in that Aldo Rain role to me. You know, I watch the movie every time and I kind of have to put that aside. Yeah, but, there, but there's a part of Tarantino movies as well that you expect, like even when Mike Myers pops up in inglorious bastards it just seems really weird and out of place but like it's a tarantino movie so right. you give yourself over to that a little bit that these weird sort of anomalies happen these casting stunts happen it's just this seemed like a really weird movie for it so like benedict cumberbatch whether, whether you know his name or not you recognize him because you know he was the man who was born to play beaker in a live action beaker remake but 
Like, it'd be like Clint Howard. Like, you know what Clint Howard looks like, whether or not you know who Clint Howard is. The real life reasoning is that I'm sure it got him an extra $20 million (laughs) of budgeting to say, I've got Colin Firth and Benedict Cumberbatch coming in for a day each. You can put them on the credit list, you know? So uh, that's the real life reason. I I didn't find it distracting at all. I actually thought it was kind of fun not knowing who was going to play the the brother role to kind of assume that it was going to be someone I knew. And I was kind of trying to figure out who was going to be. And then when it was Richard Madden, who what's funny is that, you know, uh, is Dean Charles Chapman, I believe his name, uh, who plays uh, the, the one of the two guys on the mission, whose brother is Richard Madden, spoiler alert, also in Game of Thrones. So you have Tommen from Game of Thrones and, and Rob Stark from Game of Thrones uh, playing brothers, which as a Game of Thrones nerd, I, I like. So. Uh, production design. We have Once Upon a Time in Hollywood is the favorite at minus 138. Parasite plus 350, so three to one on your money. 1917 has now just been smash bet down. It's actually plus 162, which means it's going to be plus 150 pretty quickly. So there's steam on that coming in. Uh, Those odds are dropping. Irishman 66 to one, Jojo Rabbit 80 to one. So it's between those three. I think that 1917 might actually take it. See, that odd shifted, I think, because it took the production design award at the BAFTAs. And again, I really don't I really don't put too much stock into the BAFTAs from a 1917 point of view. I really don't. I think that, um, you know, it's a British film, British filmmaker. And I think production design is one of those awards where some people might say, OK, you know, um, brilliant production design, of course, um, but very straightforward, you know. And, and of course, the production design had to fit the needs of the of the style of filmmaking for sure. It's, you know, it is, you know, not too many liberties were taken with the designing a, you know, a, a front. Whereas, I mean, Quentin Tarantino reimagining, you know, 19, late 1960s Hollywood and the production designer whose name escapes me and the production design in Parasite, which, you know, these two homes, you know, the home obviously of the rich family that so much of the, of the movie takes place in, created from scratch on a film set, uh, on a soundstage. Of course, the, the, the home of the, poor, less affluent family as well that later gets flooded and stuff like that. And the production design of that film is so important. I'm looking at one of those to take this thing down. I really am. And, you know, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood was the favorite uh, going into this thing. Um, I still think this is another place that movie could pick up an award. And I watched something recently. It was an online featurette. And I know no, not too many voters say watch these in order to kind of, you know, place their votes but i do think it's clear that once upon a time in hollywood has taken a lot of pride in the production design and uh so i do consider that the favorite in this category and with the caveat being that if parasite takes this it's a really good sign for it in best picture so i'm actually going to take i i would bet on uh, once upon a time in hollywood here and i would take it in my pool okay animated feature Two favorites, both minus 120. You have Claws and Toy Story 4. The rest of the nominees had a train your dragon hidden world. I lost my body. And Missing Link. I haven't seen any of these. Uh, what's going to win? <laughs> yeah, it sounded like you were just telling me a story. You're like, how to train my dragon. I lost my body. Like, uh, you know, it's, one of, it's a really down year for animated film. Uh, the odds on this have just severely. I mean, like uh, Toy Story 4 was like a 10 to 1 favorite. And now it just keeps, you know, it lost to Missing Link at the Golden Globes. And now it lost to Claws uh, at the Annie Awards or Animated Awards. I forget what they're called for short. And then last weekend at the Bastards. Um, is there a chance that the Disney of all this, it comes back out of the woodwork and wins this week? Sure. You know, are they strategically dropping it on Disney Plus this week? Sure. Yes, they are. Um, I started to watch Claws. I haven't finished it yet. It seems like a more straightforward approach to the animated movie than, say, we've gotten used to lately with the Pixar look of it all. Um, 
but the one thing about Missing Link, uh, Missing Link did a lot of campaigning as far as sending out goodies, which is a really easy way to win a vote when it's only 80 people winning. So I don't put uh, only 80 people voting uh, for the Golden Globe. So I don't put too much stock into that. It does look like Claws would be the movie to oust uh, Toy Story 4 here. I will say, though, Toy Story 4, a movie that you could have gotten at 10 to 1. Now you can get it at, what was it, plus 140 um, or minus 140. Um, and so either way, betting on a Disney movie to win Best Animated Feature at the Oscars, that those odds are always pretty damn good. I'm going to go Claws here. I think that Claws is a movie that's on Netflix. A lot of people seem to have seen it. Um, it won the uh, Animated Guild Award. It also just won at the BAFTAs. And I think that I don't know that that uh, as much as, you know, Toy Story 3 was nominated famously for Best Picture and that sequels have been honored in the past. I think there's the, the knock on Toy Story 4 is that it's a fourth fourth movie in the, in the film uh, in a series. So I think the originality here is helping for a film like Claws. So I'm going to go Claws, I think, in my in my pool. Um, but I'm not I'm not uh, angry if you want to bet Toy Story 4 as well. Yeah, I'm actually going to pick Toy Story 4, and I think of it, a lot of it just breaks down to Disney versus Netflix, and we've seen that Netflix doesn't have the best track record at the Oscars among Oscar voters in particular that just side with Toy Story uh, when all is said and done. Yeah, I think last year, you know, you saw uh, Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse end up winning, and that's obviously not your, your again, I talk about how you think, think of animated movies 20 years ago, you think of what The Lion King looked like and Aladdin, et cetera, the kind of more, I want to call old school, but the, the original animated look. And then Toy Story comes on and then you got Toy Story and Cars and Monsters, Inc. and Up. And for about two decades, that sort of took over as the look of animated movies. And you would have maybe like one sort of, you know, old fashioned uh, animated film or, or like Spirited Away, or you'd have an anime movie or something like that. But uh, for the most part, it was those movies. And now I think there's a, it's coming back around with Into the Spider-Verse winning last year. And I think Claws winning this year could be kind of an ode to the sort of old school animated look. Um, and I think Toy Story 4 being not an original use of this new technology, not new technology, but the computer animated kind of uh, version of uh, animation. I think that's the movie to knock down. You know, if this was a uh, like a wholeheartedly original film, like an Inside Out or an Up, these movies that are very well regarded lately, uh, Wally, -E, it would be tougher to chip away at. But the fourth installment of Toy Story, I feel like a lot of people are already like, all right, you know, I gave Toy Story my praise the first three times. Uh, and now Claws might be uh, taking it home. I don't know. But Toy Story, again, never good to bet against Disney on you know, Oscar night. So. Yeah, yeah, it's never the best idea in the world. The biggest favorite of any category, for any movie, for any award at the 2020 Oscars, Parasite is a minus 10,000 favorite to win best foreign language movie. From South Korea, from Spain, Planning Glory, from France, the 98th different version of Les Miserables. You're from North Macedonia, Honeyland. If you're a big apiarist, then you'll probably be really into Honeyland. From Poland, Corpus Christi, uh, just click. South Korea, Parasite, winner, get Bong on stage, we'll be good to go. One thing I'll note is uh, Honeyland getting the double nomination for foreign film and doc. I know we'll get to that category in a little bit, but just make that mental note that that film uh, took nominations in both categories. First time a movie's ever done that. But yeah, Parasite all the way here. Uh, do not get cute. Now, best original score, Joker, is minus 800 in this category. Uh, it, it won the Golden Globe, I believe so at least. You'll yep. know that. Uh, 1917 plus 400, Little Women 14 to 1, Marriage Story 33 to 1, and John Williams for Star Wars, Rise of Skywalker, which I think is close to his 50th nomination, maybe more than that. Uh, that's 50 to 1. He's probably not going to win this year. But Joker, click it. 
Yeah, I mean, the one thing, I don't think enough people have seen that. What was that movie called? Star Wars? I don't know that anybody saw that. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, I, the thing with Joker, and then again, I remember coming out of Joker and thinking two, thi- uh, two things blew me away. I was like, the cinematography and the score, in addition, of course, to Joaquin Phoenix. But I thought the score was haunting uh, in that movie. And this is just a great year for film scoring in general. Because, um, look, 1917, amazing score. I thought Randy Newman's score for Marriage Story was re- really underrated. But when you have a film like Joker, where one of the standout elements is the score, and you have uh, a female composer who's going to go up there and win this award, I think, you know, in a in an age where a lot is said about representation when it comes to nominations and also wins, it's one of those things where it's like, well, look, this woman put together one of the greatest scores of the year. And I want, it feels good to vote for her. Not like she doesn't deserve it. She does. But if she doesn't at this point, I look at it as kind of a snub um, because, and her, her name, uh, you know, it's even really hard to pronounce, which I think says a lot because people are voting for her, even knowing that they can't pronounce her name. Um, I think it is one of the most haunting scores of the year. It's taken on the narrative as the favorite. I think she deserves to win. And I think it will be a bright spot on Oscar Sunday to finally, you know, see a, a female up there holding a, an Oscar that she really deserves. So yes, I think Joker, uh, all the way in a really tough category. From best original song, Rocket Man, and that song is the favorite, minus 1,000. Stand Up from Harriet is plus 600. Into the Unknown from Frozen 2 is 12 to 1. I Can't Let You Throw Yourself Away from Toy Story 4, 16 to 1. And I'm Standing With You from the film Breakthrough, 50 to 1. Any chance we don't see Elton on stage? You know, it's tough. I really, this is one of the hardest categories to pick in any year other than like a year where say, you know, the one year where like Happy, which is like, you know, one of the most famous songs the last 10 years. If you've ever been to a wedding, you've heard that song. The Pharrell song that I believe was on the Despicable Me 2 or 3 soundtrack. And then you had Let It Go from Frozen, which of course took over the sound system of any car of a parent, you know, in the United States for the period of a decade. Most of the time you're like, what song is this? I don't know. Did that song play in the movie? Was that in the credits? And so it's become one of the most, I mean, the fact that I think we have to sit back and watch people perform these songs is just a waste of time during the telecast. I'm going to go with the easy vote with the Elton. You know, a lot of the star power that you thought might have been competing with Elton didn't get nominated. Taylor Swift, not nominated for Cats. Beyonce, not nominated for The Lion King. So yeah, I go with Elton John. So one of the biggest odds change, which you had pointed out, is best documentary feature. So right now we have American Factory at minus 150. Uh, for- it started it was- it was 12 to one favorite, I think, a week ago. So no. so what is she? So Four Sam is plus 110. Honeyland is nine to one. The Cave, 50 to one. And the Edge of Democracy is 66 to one. What has changed to really cut down on the odds here? Uh, Prasama has won a couple of these. Um, it won the BAFTA. It won, I forget, there was another PGA, I believe it might have won as well. Um, so American factory, which I think was, was more the well, most well, well regarded. It was on Obama's list of his favorite movies of the year. Um, ironically, one of the most well-reviewed docs of the year, Apollo 11 wasn't even nominated here, but I always thought that this was a place where someone else would win. Granted early on, I kept pushing for Honeyland. I said, people are going to look at that double nomination. They can watch it on Hulu. Uh, this is a film that I think could steal the award for American factory. Is it that, is it that much of a favorite? And it's not. Clearly, now we're down the stretch. It's not that much of a favorite. It's only minus 150. However, the movie in that spot, in that upset spot, is not Honeyland. It's for Sama. Um, so I do think that there's a couple interesting things in play here, not to be convoluted. Uh, 
is it is it tempting to go back to that original favorite that was 10 to one for the past four years and bet it at one minus 150 maybe you know like a lot of people thought going into this award season that american factory was going to run away with this thing. you can now get it at minus 150 not a bad play um when people start to pick for their pools, they're probably going towards that. They're probably going towards Forsama. I don't necessarily recommend taking Honeyland in a pool. I would probably go with one of those two, Forsama or for um, for, America, or for American Factory. However, a nice upset play here, I still think, in a weird way, because it's been kind of spread around. Again, a lot of people, their favorite dock of the year was Apollo 11. A lot of people's favorite dock was American Factory, Forsama winning some awards. And Honeyland nominated for the best foreign language feature as well as a documentary. So I think Honeyland could be a weird surprise upset that now is nine to one. I believe you're showing it as some people have it as high as 12 to one. So again, you talk about throwing the 10 bucks somewhere. I think kind of interesting. I think a lot of voters, I'm not saying they vote this way, but when you look at a ballot, you see that double nomination, which is not common for a doc. It's actually unprecedented. Um, I think some people could vote with that in mind. All right, I like that. So, yeah, we can sprinkle on some 9-to-1 action on Honeyland. But in the pool, I'm actually going to stick with American Factory and go with that. Yeah. I mean, although the Academy is more international than before, having American in your name is usually pretty good at the Oscars. Uh, let's go to costume design. Little Women is the prohibitive favorite, minus 300. Next closest is Jojo Rabbit at 275. Then Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, 6-1. to one. Irishman, 50-1. to one. Joker, 50-1. to one. I thought that Joker would do a lot better in this than being basically last place in terms of the nominees. But maybe just being nominated is good enough. Could you see a Jojo upset here, but maybe that there's just not that much support for Little Women? You know, it's funny. A lot has always been, I don't know who what stand-up comedian said this, but... Yeah, there used to be an old cliche about like, say what you will about the Nazis, but they've got their, you know, uh, coordination down when it comes to wardrobe and stuff like that. And of course, when you do a movie set in this time period, it's like that is a lot of the costuming is is putting together those. So in a way, by giving an Oscar to Jojo Rabbit for costumes, are you sort of saying, hey, not bad, not bad with the costumes there, Hitler. Uh, So I don't know that it necessarily wins. Um, Is is, uh, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood not in this category? It is. Yeah, it's six to one. It's the third favorite. That's one I could I could see taking Little Women's spot here because I think that a lot of people who still vote lived in the time period where people were wearing a lot of the things they're wearing. And once upon a time in Hollywood, I know he did a, a lot of his due diligence to recreate some of the famous outfits that um, Sharon Tate wore that, of course, Margot Robbie wears in the film. And so that could be another way to honor a time period film here. They say that time period film period pieces often run away with this award. Of course, we're talking about three of them here, Jojo Rabbit, Little Women, and Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Um, so I don't see Jojo Rabbit winning here. I think I think Little Women wins here. I think this could be the only statue that Little Women holds. And I think that that is sort of a costume forward movie. But if it's not going to be Little Women, and if you want to go off book, I would actually go Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. All right, I'm gonna. I'll go with Little Women for the purposes of the pool. Won't be betting that though. Uh, let's see. Best sound mixing. 1917, the favorite at minus 300. Ford versus Ferrari, the second favorite, plus 225. Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, 20 to one. Joker, 33. Ad Astra, 33. Any chance like Ad Astra? Just oh, man, the sound in that movie, so so good. Yeah, I mean, probably not. But uh, you know, it's one of those things where um, you never know. I think that it's it's more likely it's it's Ford versus Ferrari. You know, I think it's I think it comes down to 1917 and Ford versus Ferrari in both of the sound categories. Um, I ultimately think that it ends up being 1917, 
But um, yeah, you, ne- you never know. You know, I famously, and this isn't the sound category, but uh, First Man won uh, Best Visual Effects one year where you look at it and you're like, oh, I don't even, pro-, you know, the visual effects are not very showy, but it's like, yeah, but that's like the best movie that was nominated in the category. So unfortunately you have a movie like 1917 here, so it doesn't really apply, but it's possible that a movie like Ad Astra could have won if 1917 wasn't such a, like a sound forward movie. All right, so best sound editing. I'm going to take 1917 in the pool. I'm also going to take 1917 in best sound editing. That's minus 334 for Ford versus Ferrari, plus 240. Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, uh, 25 to 1. Joker, 28 to 1. And Star Wars, Rise of Skywalker, also 28 to 1. Like, it, like I said, if 1917 doesn't sweep these two categories, I feel like it's in real trouble. Yeah, no, it, well, again, I don't know that it needs to sweep. It needs to take one of them. Don't ask me which one. So again, I'm probably going to be checking 1917 twice in the pools and, and hoping for the best, at least 50%. If it gets blank, totally with you. Um, and if it loses one, even even so, I think maybe a sign of that. But uh, I think it takes both. Best makeup and hairstyling bombshell. The overwhelming favorite, minus 1,000. Joker, second favorite, plus 550. Judy, 16 to 1. 1917, 40 to 1. Um, and you can't even find out who the other one is. I guess that one's irrelevant at this point. But Bombshell, this is where they get an award? Uh, I actually uh, think that I have a potential upset pick here. Granted, I'm not saying put your house on it. But the thing about Bombshell is that really this is awarding the fact that Charlize Theron looked and sounded a lot like Megan Kelly. And I put a lot of that on the, the makeup for sure and the hair and whatnot, but a lot of it also is on the performance and the fact that they do <clears throat> start off looking a lot alike, you know? To me, it's not like turning Christian Bale into Dick Cheney. You know, you look at, you look at Charlize Theron and you look at Megyn Kelly and yeah, it takes some hair and makeup, but it doesn't take turning Gary Oldman into Winston Churchill. And so one thing I think could sneak up on us here is Joker. And I know it is in the second slot, but at plus 550, you know, do you go bombshell in the pool? Probably. But 550, I think if Joker is going to start racking up those awards, similar to, say, how Bohemian Rhapsody did last year, I think this is one for Joker. And here's why. The award is hair and makeup. What is on the cover of the Joker poster is a guy in makeup. And I know, granted, it's ironically like the simplest makeup ever. It's just like the this and the that. But in a weird way, look, Suicide Squad won this award a few years ago. So don't sleep on Joker here. I know Bombshell's the presumptive favorite, but I like Joker here. I, you know what? I'm going to tell you on that. Even for the pool, I'll bet that at plus 550, and I'll put a check next to it in terms of my pool. Visual effects. Yep. 1917 is a slight favorite at minus 150. Uh, Avengers Endgame is 3 to 1. The Irishman and its terrible special effects are 4 to 1. The Lion King plus 650. Star Wars Rise of Skywalker 28. I don't understand how the Irishman is nominated in this category. So much was made about oh, this de aging technology. And like half the movie, they're calling Robert De Niro kid, but he looks older than everyone else. Like it's really confusing. That was the most confusing part of that movie that he was supposed to be like 30 and I thought he was 70. Yeah, well, it was the most talked about aspect of the movie after Scorsese, De Niro, Pesci, and then the de-aging. You know, Scorsese, De Niro, Pacino, Pesci, and then the de-aging. And it's almost one of those things where you talk about it so often, 
it was the headline of this thing is why did this movie cost $200 million? Well, they shot everything with three cameras and three lenses and blah, blah, blah. And they did the de-aging. Everyone wants to text you about the de-aging. Did you like it? Did you not like it? And it's almost like you hear de-aging, 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 de-aging. And you're like, well, I guess I should vote for it. Forrest Gump won this category. I mean, watch Forrest Gump. Do you really believe that he's meeting JFK? No. So I think sometimes this award goes to the best movie. And like with First Man, like, look, should it always probably go to a Star Wars or a, or a Marvel movie that's making entire universes and this and that look real for periods of time? Sure. But sometimes I think voters vote with their heart. And I think this could be the only spot that Irishman is awarded. And so in a weird roundabout way, the same way that a lot of people said the worst element of Bohemian Rhapsody was its editing and that one best editing. <laughs> I think sometimes you talk about the editing so much that people go, okay, and then vote for the editing. So I think similarly, I don't think that it's that long of an underdog here, the Irishman. I think that this new come around for 1917, of course, 1917 shifted and became a favorite because it won visual effects of the BAFTAs. That's probably maybe the better bet now if you're going to give it to the best movie. But back to my not giving too much thought to the BAFTA win, I still, I still put the Irishman above Endgame here. I think... Uh, I don't know. I'm feeling weird. I'm taking Irishman. I am. I think I'm taking him in the pool too. All right. I, I might end up getting in on that bet. If it's six to one to win better plus five fifty winning visual effects. I mean, I, I like those odds. You're, There's you're, gotta be one headline on Monday, Pat, that starts with blank with the worst blank one best blank you know what i mean like that always happens in some regard like how how crazy is it that and this is the one i think where everyone can agree that the aging is weird i'm going to take 1917 for the pool however that gives us down to the last three the ones that people know nothing about all these are playing like literally 15 seconds outside of my door and there's no chance i'm gonna go see them but best documentary short um what is this called Learning to skateboard in a war zone if you're a girl is the minus 1,000 favorite in the absence, 8 to 1, St. Louis Superman. Wait, there's, there's more to that title? Yeah. There's, if you're a girl? Yeah, that's it. So that's in parentheses. Oh, because every time I've read it, it's learning to skateboard in a war zone. And I always made the joke that if you took like documentary short titles, this is documentary <laughs> short, right? Yeah, and put them through a uh, simulator, and you ask the computer to come up with a title that it would be learning to skateboard in a war zone because it seems like half of the shorts are either about skateboarding or war zones. Um, and then you throw the parentheses in there, and it seems even more applicable. That's the betting favorite, right? I mean, look, I w I don't want to do your audience a disservice. I know absolutely nothing about these three categories, and I'm going to bet the chalk on on the on the pool. All right, right, so so learning no reason to tell you otherwise. So learning to skateboard, despite having a name longer than the actual runtime, I assume of the short about war zone skateboarding and women. Like you have your like woke checkbox right here. Live in the dream. <laughs> so yeah, everyone could just point to that on Monday, and be like, "Well, we we awarded this film, so we're good to go." Live action short, Brotherhood is the favorite, minus two twenty five. Now. The, in the documentary short, minus 1,000, significant favorite. Minus 225, you know, a favorite, but not a huge, huge favorite. The Neighbor's Widow, plus 200. Sarnia, or sorry, Sania, 11 to 1. A Sister, 11 to 1. And Neffa Football Club, 16 to 1. I guess I would just eat the chalk here, but I think that it is worth noting that, like, a lot of the times, the, the favorite doesn't win these categories. Yeah, and look, and if you look, this is not a bad place in a pool to go with, and I'm not saying do it this way, but it's also not the dumbest way to do it. 
go with the second favorite. You know, I often do that sometimes. So. I'm doing that. I'm, I'm going to take. I'm going to take the neighbor's widow. Yeah, and I think an animated short, which is the last one to do, I am going to do this because correct me if I'm wrong. It's called like Kitbull. It's like half kitty, half pitbull. That's not the favorite, but I think that's the one I'm taking. Yeah, that's that's the say. In the animated short category, the favorite is Hair Love, and Kitbull is plus one sixty two. So I think, like for instance, like, and I'm not basing this on any knowledge other than I forget who it was, but I was listening to a podcast and somebody had said they they had a, they had received in the mail some sort of you know uh, four year consideration materials on behalf of Kitbull. It was like a stuffed animal or something. So just to know they're campaigning, and I believe Kitbull is maybe a Disney short or something like that, or it has some sort of big conglomerate behind it. I think that could be enough to push it past uh, into the winner's territory. So I go Kipple based on that. Um, but again, if you do want to get cute or not even get cute, but go a little bit off book with these smaller categories here, just know that it's okay to do it because like the person that you're betting against, your aunt Tammy is picking, you know, what was it? Hair love because the computer told her to, not because she watched all five shorts and one spoke to her. So, you know, when you divert based on the odds slightly, you know that you don't know a lot. She doesn't know a lot. Let's try to pick up a point here. You know that most people are probably going with the chalk. So, you know, a plus 160 underdog is not the worst thing in the world. And fun fact about people voting on these categories, most of the people who are voting on the stuff haven't even seen these movies. Yeah, I mean, I got kickers abolished from my fantasy football leagues like about 10 years ago because we got so annoyed. Nobody knows about kickers. Nobody actually, and it's the last thing you draft. It's like, why are these huge games for $1,000 coming down to stuff that we don't even draft? You know, some people don't even draft the kicker, but ends up, you know, being the most meaningful thing some weeks. So we just literally don't even draft and we don't have them on our teams. They're just gone. And similar with this, like as much as I love that these categories are part of the Oscars telecast and I would never t- say to get rid of them for the Oscars and I would never say take them off TV. And I love seeing these people who have to sit in the nosebleeds come down and get to give their speech because that is the greatest moment of their life. You know, they don't own planes and boats and they don't date celebrities. These are real people who spent all year or maybe half of the years of their lives working on these shorts and they get to be up there. That being said, maybe we take them off the ballot for our pools. You know, like I don't think that that necessarily they are the kicker of the Oscars pool. And I don't know that you need to necessarily win or lose, especially if you're in one of these pools where everything's worth a point. Can You know, you're picking Moonlight over La La Land. You get the same amount of points as if you pick Kit, Kit Bull over, over uh, Hair Love. Come on. I'm 100% in on this. And like, good for you for getting rid of kickers. No one should ever have to play with kickers in fantasy football. But Scott, you've given me way too much of your time. You can follow Scott on Twitter at Shot of Jagger and tell everyone about what you got going on for the Oscars and where they can check out some of the new Challenge Mania Lives, which are coming up. Yeah, so uh, our next Challenge Mania Live is WrestleMania weekend in Tampa, Florida. It's on Saturday, April 4th. Uh, you can get tickets to that and all of our shows at challengemania.live. As Pat said, you can follow me on Twitter, at Shot of Jaeger. I've been retweeting all this as well, but if you want to follow Props Network HQ, they've been posting a lot of the Oscars content that we put out. I shot a bunch of video content with them a couple weeks ago that, truth be told, is becoming more and more outdated as the days go by. But we're going to be doing some more this week and hopefully get some last-minute content up this week to help you guys make those picks in the pools and also uh, as you're betting as well. So really fun times if you're a movie guy like you and myself, Pat. So happy to come here and give you as much of my time as you need. So awesome chat. All right, if you want to check out the cheat sheet for the picks, hit the description of this video and check out DKPlaybook.com. All my pool picks will be up there. Maybe some of my favorite leans in terms of the betting market. Uh, If you want to hear a complete discussion about all of the movies nominated for Best Picture and 
Scott and my favorite movies of the last 10 years, check out part one of this, which you can also find in the description to this podcast or video. And remember, if you want to get into a draw for 100 DraftKings dollars, leave a five-star audio review. After subscribing, your DraftKings handle, something you enjoy about the show, and you'll be in that draw. And to get in the draw for 20 DK dollars, smash the like button for the video. Leave your DraftKings handle in the comment section and just tell me who you think is going to win Best Picture at the Oscars in 2020. That'll do it for me. I'm Pat Mayo. Thanks for watching. I'll see you next time. Experience! Experience!